Now that the presidential primaries are in full swing, many of us find ourselves confused about the intricate rules, politics, and processes of choosing our next president. Why do some states have primaries while others have caucuses? What's the difference between a delegate and a superdelegate? Why do political parties even have conventions? Have they always had the same purpose? To answer these questions and more, we turn to Jacob Weisberg, editor-in-chief of the Slate Group and host of the Slate Trumpcast, to take us through our nation's convoluted presidential primary system. And I'm very pleased it has brought him to our show. Hello. Good afternoon, Leonard. Thank you for having me. And we invite our audience to join in this conversation. I'm sure everyone out there is a bit confused. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. How did the, the modern presidential nomination process begin? Did, did it begin with the McGovern-Fraser Commission? That was one of the reforms on the Democratic side that tried to make the primary uh, process more democratic. Traditionally, of course, it had been more run by party bosses and party officials. Uh, but that was as far as this pendulum swung towards letting the voters decide. In some ways, it swung back in, in a little a little bit. Well, that was supposed to end the smoke-filled room. And and I think it largely did. You know, the 1972 Democratic Convention was a real melee. In some ways, it's a template for what could happen in Cleveland at the Republican Convention this year. Um, but uh, essentially, you had reformers in the party challenging some of the establishment delegates, particularly the Chicago delegation, where the party actually seated a group of independent delegates who just showed up at the convention and said, we're more representative of the citizens of Illinois, the voters of Illinois, than the delegates who were actually elected. Were there more caucuses on the Democratic side before 1968? Uh, that's a good question. The, the, there's always, the, caucuses, the, the caucus primary division um, was not, didn't used to be as important. It's really the Iowa caucus. And I think what happened in 1976 when Jimmy Carter won the Iowa caucus and then went on to win the nomination that put a spotlight particularly on the early caucuses and particularly on Iowa. Although it is interesting that most of the early caucuses are in states that don't have much clout, and yet they have so much importance to this process. Yes, you know, and a caucus is a funny thing if you've ever been to one. On the Republican side in Iowa, they do something I think of as very undemocratic, which is you have to vote in public. You know, the secret ballot is kind of one of the hallmarks of an advanced democratic system. But at a caucus... At the Republican caucus, you literally have to stand up and be counted. You go and stand with the other people supporting your candidate. Well, in The Good Wife, they had that with the Democratic caucus as well. And in, in reality, in Iowa, it does not happen in the Democratic caucus. So that's just one of the complications. You know, these rules are different state by state and, and with each party. And now only 12 states and three territories still have caucuses. Um, in the end, there's a big difference between a caucus and a primary. Primary, anybody can vote. Can anybody go to a caucus? Uh, generally, the rules are you have to be registered in that party. But a, but another um, thing about a caucus that's important is it's a big effort. It takes a lot of time. If you, you have to go to a caucus, you have to be there at a specific time, and you have to go through this whole process of people making nominating speeches. And I also think of that as sort of antiquated. You know, people have jobs. They have to pick up their children. They may not be able to be available to go to the caucus at 6 p.m. And some states have caucuses for one party and primaries for others. Who pays for all of these things? 
generally, the uh, the elections are state funded, but there's always a um, mix in this process between the control the state party has and the control the state government has. And that's one of the tensions we see played out in the delegate selection process. Do state laws determine the primary process for, for each state, or are there also national rules that have to be followed? The national rules are, are really crucial, and, and it's funny. One of the things that I think is very confusing about it is people assume there are rules. But in fact, the convention every four years in each party sets new rules. And the starting point might be the rules before, but essentially they can make whatever rules they want for how the nominee is going to be chosen that year. And the courts have generally held that parties can pretty much do what they want. They're private associations, and if they want to make a rule that might seem very arbitrary or undemocratic, they actually have the legal right to do that. Do they gain an advantage by holding a caucus rather than a primary? I don't think the caucus versus primary distinction is is going to be the key a, a key factor this this time around. The, the key issue with the Republicans, because we are Leonard looking at the first contested convention, really that the Republicans uh, have had since 1976. And and if you want to talk about one that wasn't settled on the first ballot, you have to go back farther than that. Um, but the real issue I think is going to be around the credentials and the rules and the rules about how delegates are bound. Because if I could just elaborate a little sure. bit. We have bound and unbound delegates. <laughs> yes, exactly. It sounds it kind sounds of like kinky. kinky. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and again, it's different in the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party. On the Democratic side, the delegates run as individuals supporting their candidates. So if you're elected as a Sanders delegate, Sanders has delegates who support Sanders and the super delegates, which we'll get into in a moment. On the Republican side, the delegates are generally appointed by the state parties to execute the will of the voters. So these people who may be Trump delegates are not necessarily Trump supporters. In fact, they may be against Trump. So if they are bound, required to carry out the will of the voters on, say, the first ballot, they have to vote for Trump. But on the second ballot, they can vote for whoever they want. My guest is Jacob Weisberg, who's editor-in-chief of the Slate Group and host of the Slate Trumpcast. And we're inviting your calls to this. Please explain. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org or on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is at Leonard Lopate. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. When New York votes in its primary on April 19th, will we be voting for delegates or does it, again, does it matter whether we're a Democrat or a Republican? On the Democratic side, I'm pretty sure you're voting for the specific individual delegates. But you would just vote. So, uh, so I would know that those delegates represent the candidate I prefer? I believe, if I'm remembering right, the names of the delegates are on the ballot. But you, but you can just pull the lever for Clinton or Sanders, and you don't have to have an opinion about the individual delegates. I mean, it's sort of a crazy system. It's like voting down the ballot for you know 100 judges, which still happens in, in some states. Voters can't possibly be expected to make decisions that minute. And how would the delegates chosen? Uh, the delegates are generally uh, chosen by the campaigns and or, well, the, the, the delegates who run on behalf of the candidates are chosen by those candidates on the Democratic side. But on the Democratic side, you have on a large number. On, oh. I was talking about the Democrats mm -hmm. there. Um, on the Democratic side in particular, you have a large number of superdelegates which are which are appointed by the state party and are generally they're in effect uncommitted delegates 
and the candidates are free to start swaying those people even before they they're elected. Now, Hillary right now has 467 superdelegates who uh, are supposedly going to vote for her. Sanders only has 26. How did that happen? Is it just, uh, are we talking about the party faithful getting to pick and choose which ones they support? Yeah, and, and Leonard, you were talking about 1972 when you had this sort of democratic rebellion that resulted in George McGovern being nominated and losing very badly. And I think there was a reaction to that in the Democratic Party. And they said, well, we don't want boss control, which we used to have, but we can't go all the way over to having populist control because that will result in a nominee who can't get elected. So we're going to try to have some ballast by having these superdelegates who will sort of represent the interests of the party. A lot of them are just elected officials. They're members of Congress and so forth. The nominees who can't get elected, uh, that's pretty much what we talk about when we talk about candidates uh, appealing to their base. Because uh, in the end, uh, the the base of each party does not re- necessarily reflect the complete American population. In in both parties, the voters who are most active and involved tend to be more extreme. So um, on the one hand, uh, say the Cruz voters and, and voters for other right-wing candidates and also the Sanders voters. But I do think these this democratic change in favor of the superdelegates was designed specifically to prevent someone like Sanders coming in and getting the nomination and losing the election. And, well, we don't know whether he would lose the election if he ran against Ted Cruz or Donald Trump. Uh, In the end, uh, there are a lot. I I receive complaints constantly from Sanders supporters saying that the the whole thing is is skewed uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton. They're very upset about it. They feel that that the press is also leaning definitely toward Hillary Clinton, and uh, they feel frustrated. They feel it's undemocratic. Well, I have some sympathy for that argument. Uh, I think no, less on the on the press bias. I don't think the press has been unfair to Sanders, uh, but I do think. Well, you don't yeah. read the New York Times, so. <laughs> but uh, but in terms of the selection process, absolutely. When it's possible for Hillary Clinton to lock up all of these superdelegates, I mean that is an undemocratic factor in the election. And if you're a Sanders supporter, I absolutely understand why you'd be indignant about that. Well, I mentioned that there are about uh, a little under 500 superdelegates currently. Will more be added later? I think that's the total number. So we Mm. know how many superdelegates there will be at the Democratic Convention, and we know who they are. So the reason they have that delegate count is people have gone and polled those superdelegates. And that's, again, even before voting has taken place in many of the states, those superdelegates will effectively represent. And then the Republican Party has unbound delegates. Are they similar to uh, in any way to superdelegates? Well, the way the Republican rules worked the last time, and again, they'll set the rules for this convention on the eve of the convention, and they'll they'll be very important. But the way they've worked uh, of late is that these delegates are bound on the first ballot. Uh, And we haven't had a Republican convention that's gone beyond a first ballot since the 1960s. But if, say, Donald Trump arrives at the convention without 1,237 delegates, which is an absolute majority, if he doesn't get that on the first ballot, on the second ballot, delegates will be freed up. And, of course, historically, elections, uh, uh, conventions can go into hundreds of ballots until someone emerges who can get 50 percent plus one. And uh, Donald Trump says that if that happens and it works against him, then it would be going against the will of the, the voters. Well, yeah, and and I don't think he's right about that. I mean, I think you have to, you know, these historical precedents, you're going back a long way, again, because this hasn't happened. 
But if you look at the historical precedent, when someone does not win on the first ballot, it's open season. And there is no precedent in either party that says if you get a plurality of delegates, that is just more than anybody else, you're entitled to the nomination. Tony Mankovic of the New York Times Upshot uh, blog has compared the Democratic superdelegates to a regulatory body and voting on the Republican side to a laissez-faire market. Does that <laughs> make sense to you? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very chaotic on the on the Republican side, and I think that the test this time will be whether there there is a Republican Party establishment that can coalesce and set rules that will stop Trump from getting the nomination. Theoretically, it's entirely possible. Whether they have the gumption to make that happen is an open question. Now, this is all stuff that has developed over the years. A listener wants to know on Twitter if these delegate rules are addressed anywhere in the Constitution. My guess is no, because the Constitution doesn't even consider the fact that we would have had political parties. Yes, well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Leonard, because I think that's incredibly interesting. The the, the founders thought political parties were an evil. They, the term they used was faction. And they were right. And, well, they, I think, but they, what they didn't really understand is they're inevitable and mm. that you've, you've never had a successful democratic system without parties. And so our system, although it's not in the Constitution, grew to accommodate parties. But the, but the parties are, are, are private organizations. And again, they can essentially do whatever they want to choose their nominee. And how soon did the idea of a convention develop? Uh, that's a good question. The, the the political parties, you know, had emerged very clearly yeah. by the early 19th century, and I think you were having conventions by. Well, I'm 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 gonna I, I shouldn't I shouldn't guess about something I don't remember exactly, but certainly well before the Civil War, there were party conventions. I'm speaking with Jacob Weisberg on today's Please Explain look at presidential primaries, delegates, conventions, etc. You're invited to join the conversation. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. We'll continue after this. We are back with... Uh, Jacob Weisberg, uh, talking about presidential primaries, delegates, conventions, etc. Please explain, Mr. Weisberg is editor-in-chief of the Slate Group and host of the Slate Trump cast, which deals with these topics. And uh, we are inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. Kevin from Nassau, New York. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I just had a question regarding, I had heard somewhere on the news, that regarding the Republicans, for candidates who had dropped out, for example, Marco Rubio, those delegates weren't even bound on the first ballot, that they became the Republican version of a superdelegate. And I was, the first time I'd ever heard it, I was curious if that was true and how it works. That, so that would be Rubio and Chris Christie, I guess. And, and Ben Carson, mm-hmm. who ben, all have some yeah, delegates. Yeah. Yeah. And, and is that why they say they suspend their campaigns rather than they really drop out? Yeah, uh, you, the caller is absolutely right. According to the pre-existing Republican rules, if you drop out, uh, your delegates become uncommitted. And Rubio has the largest pool of those, 160. Although one theory I've been playing with a little bit is if Rubio unsuspends his campaign because Trump doesn't have a majority, would his 
delegates could be could they be rebound required to vote for him on the first ballot and help to deny Trump the nomination that way is it ever too late to declare uh, hasn't it been suggested that Paul Ryan might be considered as a candidate even though he hasn't been running well I think that would happen uh, it, it's not too late to declare you know um, Ronald Reagan the first time he ran for president in 1968 he declared his candidacy the week before the convention he wasn't in any of the primaries, but he thought he there would be a there would be a, a, a this this uh, contested convention situation, and he could come in and get the nomination. Didn't didn't turn out that way. But you can declare your candidacy at any point. But if Paul Ryan did declare, and of course he said the opposite, he said he doesn't want to run for president. Uh, he would go without any delegates. But on a second ballot, he could campaign for for essentially all the delegates. Apparently, according to um, a listener. Bernie Sanders has tied or beaten Hillary Clinton in a majority of the actively contested votes this election season. Uh, so he wonders how Hillary wound up with so many more delegates. Well, you know, again, these sort of state rules are different. Some states are winner take all in terms of delegates. That happens more often on the Republican side. Um, but, you know, Sanders has come ahead in uh, some states that have caucuses and that have a very small number of delegates. Um, I'm not sure exactly the statistics that the listener is using. Is he counting the total popular votes? I don't, Unfortunately, I, I don't he didn't think, hang on the phone. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but the process is biased in favor of Hillary Clinton or one might say the more establishment uh, candidate in exactly the way we talked about in that it's the superdelegates who are a big proportion of the delegates who she's – basically locked up by getting their endorsements before the election. But different states can institute a proportional rule, a winner-take-all rule, or some hybrid of the two. That's each state's individual party? Yes, exactly. So Arizona on the Republican side, for example, is winner-take-all. So uh, Donald Trump got all the Arizona delegates. Uh, In uh, Utah, where they also voted, I think they had a rule that you can get it's winner-take-all, but if only if you reach a certain threshold. So again, every state, it's different. In Florida, they have a rule that this thing we were talking about, about the delegates being unbound on the second ballot. In Florida, the state law says they're bound through the third ballot. You know, there's an exception. To everything I've said, there's probably an exception to it. Will Bernie Sanders have a harder time catching up to Hillary Clinton because none of the Democratic races are winner-take-all or winner-take-most? Well, I think people who, who have done the math and who, who are looking at this specifically more closely than I have think that that winning the number of delegates he would need to get the nomination is essentially impossible for Sanders at this point because the proportion of the vote he would need would be 60, 65 percent, which it just seems extremely unlikely. It sounds like Donald Trump would be easier to stop under Democratic rules with the help of superdelegates and uh, no winner-take-all option. That's a great point, Leonard. I think that's actually true. I think if the party rules were transposed, Trump might not be pointed toward the nomination as it wouldn't be as likely as it is. The Republican National Committee made changes to rules about delegate allocation after the 2012 election. Why did they do that? They they make some changes every year. The, the, the Probably the most significant change they made in 2012 was to something called Rule 40. And we're really going to get into the weeds here. But there was a rule that said you had to win at least five states, primaries or caucuses, to have your name even placed in nomination. And I think the reason they did this is they want an orderly process. People are watching on national television, and they want to send a message of party unity. They don't want to have a lot of chaos. And that was particularly around 
uh, uh, Rand Paul. Um, I'm sorry, not uh, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, mm-hmm. who, you know, there was a sort of inside some of the state conventions to choose the delegates. These libertarians who supported Ron Paul had created a movement and they wanted to permit, prevent Ron Paul from having his name placed in nomination. So they raised that threshold to winning eight states. Now that rule works against the interests of the party or at least against the interests of the stop Trump people because unless they change that rule, which I think they probably will, Ted Cruz is the only other candidate who could conceivably be nominated on the first ballot. Jim from New Jersey asks if the 1952 convention in which Eisenhower emerged as a dark horse candidate has any similarities to this year's GOP primary. Yeah, um, uh, Jeff Greenfield, wrote a, uh, who's a, someone who watches this very closely, wrote a piece about all the parallels in, in 1952. Uh, essentially, um, the the uh, well, I'm not going to explain 1952 very well because I, I don't remember the details. The one the one that I think is the strongest parallel is 1964. And there's a very good uh, podcast about this that John Dickerson, my colleague, did. He does a program called Whistle Stop about the history of, of American campaigns. Excuse the plug, but he, he talked about— It's okay. <laughs> if it's useful, what's the difference? Yes. Well, thank you. Um, I, I'm he, proud of a lot of WMIC shows. This was—I just listened to this, and I could not believe how close the parallel was. There was a Stop Goldwater movement, and it was very much like what you hear around the Stop Trump movement. And essentially the party establishment said, this guy is going to be a disaster. He's going to drag us down to defeat. We're going to lose seats in Congress, all of which, of course, is, is what happened. Um, but the Stop Goldwater movement didn't work at all. And he had a great quote that was attributed to Nixon at the time, which is when you, you hear that there's a Stop X movement, vote on X, vote for, bet on X. In the case of Goldwater, he represented a a turn to the right for the Republican Party, and that the party in those days had a very large, what we might call liberal contingent. That's largely disappeared. But a recent ABC News Washington Post poll indicated that approximately half of the GOP voters don't want to see a contested convention. So what would happen in the event of a contested GOP convention? Those are the scenarios we've just been playing with, and because it hasn't happened in such a long time, and it hasn't happened with the kind of media we have now. We've had contested uh, conventions in the relative early days of television, but we've never had one with social media. We've never had one with instantaneous media of the kind we have now. The transparency is a lot bigger today. Yes, and there there's just no way that you can do things in smoke-filled rooms the way the way you once could. So I think there would be a higher degree of chaos. And of course, Donald Trump has predicted, or some would say threatened, riots. You know, So there is an actual possibility of violence inside or outside the convention hall if some people feel so so cheated by the, what, the outcome of the process. Now, there are people who defend the concept of the smoke-filled room. They say the people in those smoke-filled rooms really are more sophisticated about politics and who might win and who might not. I, I think my feeling about that is is choose your poison. The alternative that we have now is not a, anything like a perfectly democratic process. You know, the process gives all of this weight to these early states. If you are vote in Iowa or New Hampshire, your primary vote is worth, I don't know, a hundred times, a thousand times what it's worth if you vote in California. 
Um, so the, the whole principle of one person, one vote is intrinsically compromised by the, by the structure of the primary system. And would a system in which some sort of party elders pick the nominee, I think it would feel worse. I don't think people would accept it. But would it really be less democratic than what we have now? I'm not sure. Well, we've had undemocratic primaries in the past. For example, there was one where Al Smith was denied the nomination because the KKK sent 20,000 delegates up into the to New York for that convention. Yeah. Well, you didn't used to have popular primaries. You didn't used to have the direct election of senators. But the, but the historical movement over time has been towards more democratic process. Do we even need conventions anymore? I think uh, are they for show? Are they to get attention? Well, the funny thing is that that argument until really this year has been building because there hasn't been any question since the 70s about who the nominee would be. And essentially what they are is an unpaid four-day political advertisement for each party. Now, there's an argument for that because it, it lets the country understand who the parties are, who the candidates are, what they represent, but it essentially lets them put on national propaganda. This time, on the Republican side at least, they it sure looks like they're going to need the convention to pick the candidate. So maybe they're not quite done yet. Ken from the Upper West Side. Hi, you're on the air. Hello, hello. Um, I'm wondering how, how how is the rules committee um, selected? I I think, and you may be testing the limits of my arcane knowledge here. I, I I've been trying to bone up on this, but I think the rules committee is essentially appointed by the national party. Um, so these are party officials, uh, and again, might uh, reflect some of the establishment bias. There, it is not the, the uh, rules committee is not reflective of the popular vote. Anyway, another complication that's really worth noting here: say the rules committee passes a rule that says there's no thre- threshold to have your name uh, placed in nomination. Say they pass a bun- bunch of anti-Trump rules. The the delegates are not committed on those rules votes, which take place before the roll call vote. So all of these Trump appointed Trump delegates we talked about who might not be for Trump could vote for the anti-Trump rules from the Rules Committee that might have the effect of making them more free to vote against Trump. Now, going back to the primaries, some states have primaries where you don't have to be affiliated with either party. You can, And uh, we have heard of people crossing over to other parties to kind of stack the vote for the candidate they think would be most likely to lose. Yeah, I, I mean, strategic voting is something people – it doesn't happen as much in practice as it could happen in theory. There are states that have open primaries where you don't have to be registered. You can vote in either primary. You can go to whichever – primary seems more interesting or where your vote seems more relevant. Uh, but the idea that, you know, Democrats are going to vote in the Republican Party to pick the candidate they think would lose to the Democrats, that's a very that's a very small scale phenomenon. But uh, primaries can be skewed, as we've just seen in Arizona. Uh, will anything happen as a result of the complaints about uh, how Arizona has kind of forced certain people to not be able to vote? Yeah, they, they, they radically constricted the number of polling places. And, you know, everyone saw the stories about people waiting in line until after 10 p.m. to, to be able to vote. Uh, n- no, nothing will happen. I mean, there may that may be reformed and changed for next time, but it's almost impossible to do anything ret- retrospectively. The courts don't want to get involved in this in the, the political process at this level. 
We hear about brokered conventions and contested conventions. Um, have we been clearing that up, even though we haven't used those terms? The, yeah, I would use the term contested convention, which to me just means that the nominee isn't known uh, going into the convention. A brokered convention suggests that there are brokers, and you know, as in the old days, there would be powerful figures of the party who would essentially make the decision. I don't think that describes the reality anymore. Well, wasn't there talk of a brokered convention in 2012 when Newt Gingrich refused to bow out to Mitt Romney? Well, there's all early on when things look close and no one no one appears as the winner there's always the, the the pundits always say oh this year we could have a brokered convention or a contested convention and every year it fades away and that may be the case this year trump may get his 1237 and this this whole discussion may be moot um but it but i think it's it's enough of a reality this time that it's worth getting out these rule books and trying to figure out how it will work if he doesn't Bonnie on Twitter asks, why can't all the primaries be held in the same day? Uh, well, that would make far too much sense. Uh, and it would be fair and it would make, make everybody's vote equal. I don't see how we could possibly have that. In New York, we in California, the two, two of the three states that have the largest populations in America, the primaries are very late in the game. So we, we have little power. Yes. Well, you have this this kind of uh, arms race to go first, you know, and, and Iowa and, and New Hampshire uh, and now other states that follow them, including South Carolina and Florida, sort of assert their right by tradition to be early. And they make various arguments about, oh, you know, New Hampshire with the candidates have to appear in person and it's democracy on a smaller scale and it lets people get to know. Them. It's all really a lot of hooey. But but the party, the, the uh, national parties have supported the state party claims to ma maintain this early advantage. And what they do is, if any other state moves their primary early, if New York moved its primary to January 15th, New Hampshire would move its primary to December 15th. We have very little time left, but do you think that this latest scandal involving Ted Cruz will have much of an impact considering the fact that Donald Trump has so many scandals attached to him? <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, uh, Ted Cruz sex scandal is one of those phrases I just don't even want to think about. Uh, but there does uh, it does seem to uh, go straight to the point about this double standard. I, I have to end it there, unfortunately. Okay, Jacob Weisberg is editor <laughs> of Slate, and we want to let you know that Slate's Culture Gab Fest will be doing a live show on April 6th at 7.30 at the SVA Theater. For more information go and tickets, go to our show page at wnyc.org slash Thanks so much.